This is The Neutral Position, hosted by Nick Palmisciano. Bringing honesty and reason back into conversation. Here's your host, Nick Palmisciano. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Neutral Position. Today, I have Dr. William Cromwell, veteran, expert in lipids. Uh, I mean, you've done a lot of crazy stuff, but... uh, I think probably the coolest thing is that uh, you know Albert. That's not. <laughs> that's not the coolest thing. That's, no. that's not. It's a the good lamest. Cool thing it's at all. the lamest thing. But um, you've got an interesting background, and uh, I, I would love to hear you kind of talk about what made you want to become a doctor, and then how do you go from that to getting dropped into Desert Storm? You're right. I, I've thought about that a little bit. I've worn a few different hats, right? So. Um, I came from a family that wasn't really medical. My dad was a psychologist. My mom was a communications professor. But for whatever reason, I like science. I, I thought science would be something I would do. Mm-hmm. So early on, medicine was interesting. Chemistry was interesting. Um, so Chemistry's tough. I know, but it, you know, you mix things up and stuff happens, and that was okay, right? Sometimes it goes boom, sometimes not. But there, All of the sciences like have come very naturally to me. Yeah. But chemistry was always and, and like I still remember like the structures of, you know, like, like you know, one S2, two S2. Two, oh, two wow. Yeah, you like do I, remember. I still remember. That's impressive. I still remember like all of the structures. But it was that was the one thing that like I had to really grind to succeed at. Whereas physics, I just get it. Right. So whenever I meet somebody that loves chemistry, I'm like, interesting. Like, what about wh- what about stoichiometry? Yeah, yeah, I That's, mean, yeah. That you like that part? I didn't like it. It was fine, but it, but it, like chemistry in general, it never quite makes sense. You know, there's always a yeah, but. It's I just like, believe it. It's like this plus this <laughs> equals this, except for you know, there's always an except for. Well, you see, that's the thing. It's a game, and you learn the exceptions. Yeah. And so it's just a complicated game that just gets more complicated as you go. So I felt like physics was the same way, but it was still straightforward. It was like, hey, we're going to launch a projectile. All right, now we're going to add angle. All right, now we're going to add air. You know, like you kept adding things. Yeah. But it wasn't like, oh, yeah, unless uh, it's not actually in that spot because it bounces around. You know, like chemistry is different. So I always look at chemistry people like, with like a, you know, like what's... (laughs) You know, how do you think? So you got a passion for chemistry, of all things. Yeah, so um, with that, I went to undergraduate school and thought, well, you know, we'll see how this goes. Mm-hmm. And I kind of have two things in mind, medicine, chemistry, went down the road. I uh, got a, an undergraduate degree in uh, physical chemistry. Um, got to work with a mentor. Uh, turned out to be very impactful in my life, Maurice F. Tink, who was kind of a young lion in physical chemistry. Got to work in his lab. I was on his NSF grant for two and a half years. Can you explain the difference between physical chemistry and chemistry? So um, physical chemistry is looking at why things stick together, right? So you you have a reaction, Mm -hmm. and uh, A plus B equals C, and there are bonds that are made there, and the different kinds of bonds. You can have um, ionic bonds or hydrophobic bonds or other types of bonds, and there are ways that you can – uh, test what you think is going on and how you do that. And so this gets into some of the things like free energy equations and high-end uh, types of medical equipment or, or chemistry equipment. And you're basically trying to get as deep as you can down into the why do these things stick together, right? 
Um, and that was what his lab did with a multitude of different modalities. So we were using something called fluorescence polarization titrations and microcalorimetry and other things. And so the, the group was set up so we all had a different way of tackling the same question. And then we would come with our data and try to put it together and say, are, are we seeing the same things? Is this reinforcing or are we getting divergent responses for some reason? Based on the conditions of when you were combining these things and what energy you were putting into the Right. Right. And so we, we ended up doing these things. It was kind of fun because, you, you know, we were in little huddles, if you will, but we all came together at different times. And um, we could get a good bit of work done that way. But it, it taught me a few things. It taught me uh, precision. Mm -hmm. It taught me uh, the, the importance of doing things correctly and reproducibly. Uh, it opened my mind to the idea that there can be things happening that you don't see. And when data comes out in a way you didn't predict, you know, why? And you, you believe the data, you just don't understand why the data was that way. And, and that became an important part of my medical training and what I carry through to today. And I, I think you can get polarized pretty quickly when you see data that may not comport to your ideas. And either somebody's right, somebody's wrong, or the data's right and the model needs to be adjusted to accommodate the data. Hmm. And if you do it that way, you're, you're kind of continuously learning and nobody's at risk. It's not threatened in that way. Yep. And, and when you publish something and somebody publishes something that appears to be uh, in contrast to that, it's okay. Because then you're trying to figure out, well, how come his data looks one way and my data looks some another yeah, way? Yeah, rather than make it competitive. Right. You're just trying to solve the problem. Right. Do you think that's a thing that makes an excellent physician? Yeah, I do. Be because one of the things that I've seen, especially as medicine has gotten more challenging, and I don't put this on the doctors, I put it on the system, but doctors, I've typically seen doctors kind of bypass anything that doesn't seem like what they would expect. It's almost like, well, this can't be right. Let's, and uh, you know, my wife has had a, a, an assortment of very, very rare uh, conditions, you know, and it's been incredibly frustrating because she, she, in every single situation, she has arrived at the conclusion before her doctors. And the initial reaction has always been extremely like, no, it can't be that because of X, Y, and Z. And then she turned out to be right. And this has happened like three times now. So I watch, uh, watching it, and this isn't, I'm not here to criticize doctors. I, I do see how the system works where there almost isn't a quarterback for any condition anymore. It's like you go to a specialist and this specialist and that specialist. Um, has it gotten harder for physicians to to do their jobs, you know, as the, the landscape of healthcare has changed? And I know I'm taking you in a completely different direction, but I, uh, as, as you were talking through your process, it strikes me as very different from what I've seen. Oh, it's a good point. I think there are probably two or three things that contribute to what you just described. One thing is critical thinking. Uh, when I was going through medical school, differential diagnosis was a big deal. Mm. And that is that, so you present with a certain set of complaints. And now what all could be wrong with you? That's differential diagnosis. You should think very broadly. Um, this goes back to some of the old days of medicine. There was a guy named uh, Sir William Osler, who was the father of modern internal medicine. And uh, there are pictures of him sitting at a bedside, you know, just thinking trying to figure out what was going on. And that was the model for medical education for a long time, is that you, you should learn broadly and think broadly so that when somebody comes in, you're not getting too narrow, you're not getting tunnel vision. 
And, and then if you think broadly and critically, you're likely not to miss so much. Mm. And it should inform what's missing and the way you do tests and the way you interpret data and that sort of thing. So that was very much a part of the way that I was brought up uh, when I went to medical school in the early 80s. Um, I am on faculty at Wake Forest. I have an opportunity to teach some of the fellows and, and residents. And what I see now is an emphasis on following guidelines. So guidelines are the synthesis of information. They're the least common denominator of how you treat something. They're not designed to give detailed information about anybody, but it's supposed to get you in the right direction. So I see a lot of people quoting guidelines, but not understanding the disease the guideline is speaking mm -hmm. to, right? So you have somebody who comes in with something unusual. Uh, are you uh, comfortable thinking broadly and saying, okay, well, let's, let's kind of put our minds to this. What are the possible issues here? Is this a metabolic problem? Is this a structural problem? Is this a neurologic problem? Is this, you know, so go through your, your differential diagnosis. And, and then, you know, allow yourself to take on board the fact this could be common. Uh, it could be uncommon. Uh, we say if you hear hoofbeats, think of horses, not zebras. Well, true, but there are zebras out there. And, and in my specialty, um, I get sent a lot of people with complicated things. And one of the things I, I need is time to unpack that. So the second problem is, you know, if we're not being taught critical thinking well, are we given the time to unpack what's in front of us? Oftentimes, no. So you've got a five-minute, seven-minute, nine-minute encounter. Anybody's going to be pressed to try to do sure. a deep dive of anything sure. in that time frame. So that becomes a problem. And, and what got us there is this whole economics of medicine, right? We, we're in this factory model where you got to get certain numbers of people through in a day to get a certain amount of revenue to cover a certain amount of cost in order for you not to close your doors. And if you're in a big system, they will tell you with great precision what your number is. <laughs> right? You need to see this many people or you're not pulling your weight or whatever. Right? So there's a, a whole economic side of this that young docs are becoming very aware of. I need to see people at a certain pace. I have guidelines that are the least common down in med medicine. That's what I need to do. Um, critical thinking, that's not something I necessarily have to do. There are specialists for that, so we'll just punt to a, a specialist sure. who's going to do that for me. Um, and that leaves people needing a quarterback. And, and my model of a quarterback is somebody who's going to uh, own the process of problem solving. We're going to solve this problem. Now, I may not be the guy that's going to solve the problem, but I will connect the dots so the problem gets solved. Who's going to be that person who's going to step up and say, that's on me. I'm going to mm -hmm. do the, the connecting. I, I don't see that much anymore. Who do, you think, who do you think that should be in, in the modern system? Who should be that quarterback? Well, historically, primary care has been looked to as the gatekeeper and the integrator. And that may or may not be fair because if you don't give them the time to do that, mm -hmm. then once again, we're asking them to do a task which they're not given the adequate resources for. Uh, that's still a good model. So if it's the internist, if it's the family physician who's supposed to be that uh, point of connection that works, um, in some cases you have teams that are there to try to support the doc. You've got mid-level providers. You've got other levels of care. Uh, but it really does take somebody who sees that as a mission, as a calling, that I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it right. I'm going to do it right just like you were my, my family member. And that was something that was important when I came up. Uh, medicine was practiced in a way where that patient was your responsibility, and you were with them for long periods of time. This idea of I have X number of hours, and then I check out because that's the way medicine is being taught these days. Sure. We, we had no such thing. We were on call every other night. 
I can't tell you how many nights I spent at the bedside in ICU with people on diabetic ketoacidosis, pulling them out of the fire. Um, that it was my responsibility. This person was my responsibility. I was on the hook to do what was right so they had the best possible outcome. And, and that was the way my generation came up. What I see is now more of a transactional type of relationship. I'm here to help you, and the way I'm going to help you is I'm going to apply this you know, approach in this time frame, and we're going to make sure the least common denominator stuff gets done, and that's going to pass for usual medical care. But when you are more sick or things didn't work, we have the ability to step back and do more, but we don't necessarily start the encounter the same way. Interesting. Albert, you had a you had a question. Yeah, there's a common belief that among the general public that most hospitals are now run by like MBAs. They're not run by doctors. Is is that true? Like, is there any d data to suggest that that is true? Well, I'll tell you my personal experience. Right, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there is a financial side to medicine, and um, that is going to rear its head one way or another. Uh, I was in a very large healthcare system whose name will go unspoken. And uh, I, was, I was actually brought into that system to build a department, a department of lipoproteins and atherosclerosis, which I did. Um, and about three years into this experience, somebody came to me at Bean Counter and said, Doc, you need to see 25 people a day. I said, well, that's a very specific number. How would you come up with that? He said, I did the math. Well, what math did you do? And the short answer was he had a formula for what revenue and bad debt and expenses – and most of this was born equally across the physicians in this network. It really wasn't my bad debt. It was my portion of the system's bad debt, et cetera. And so when you do all this, this is how many people you have to see. Okay, um, what happens when I'm seeing complex patients, and to do that, I would have to compromise their care? You still have to see 25 people a day. So I wish them well. And I decided to leave that system. Good for you. And went into what at the time was a little bit novel in 2010, and that was my own old-fashioned fee-for-service practice. And what I, I did a deep dive, you know, where is all this money costing us? Where is it coming from? Claims management mm -hmm. was 55% oh, yeah. of the overhead. So what if I don't have claims to manage? What if you and I agree that a new patient visit for an hour cost X, Mm -hmm. and a follow-up for a half an hour cost Y. You can pay me with cash, check, or credit card. You can yeah. file if you want. I have no accounts receivable. I have no bills to scrub at the end of the day. I just knocked off 55% of my overhead. 100%. My, my ex was, uh, for a very brief period of time when I was in the Army, was a medical coder. So she spent one year as a coder, right? And I learned entirely too much about <laughs> the medical process. And that was years ago, and I've, I understand it's gotten much worse. Oh, yeah. But that was, you know, I don't know. But, yeah, that's a that's a disheartening number, 55%, because I think we've all been to – unfortunately, a lot of us have been to an ER for whatever reason, and you get a huge bill, oh, like, yeah. just for, like, stitches for my son because he split his chin – I mean, he split his chin wide open, uh, tripping over something in yeah. the middle of the night, his chin gashed up, got to get stitches, closed that up, was bleeding profusely. But I remember the bill was, like, five grand. I was like, he didn't see a doctor. He immediately got like a, an RN, you know, sewed it up. Yeah. It's just so there's no I other RNs awake at I that hour. I would have sewed that up for him. Well, sure. Yeah. <laughs> point being is, point being is now I know that you know of that four thousand dollars or whatever the bill was, fifty five percent of it was just to handle the claims. Like that's crazy. Yeah. yeah, it's wild. And I'm on like again, I it's not like I was in the system, but you know, if anything is wrong on the sheet. 
they just kick it back. They don't pay anything on it. So the coders are, you're employing all of these people. Most practices have like three or four coders that are just processing the work yeah. that you did right. off of the doctor's notes. And, you know, if they don't get everything right, they kick it back. It could take you months to get paid depending on, like, it's crazy. And all of that overhead and everything is part yeah. of claims management, yeah. right? So, so you get rid of that, and then you say, well, I can negotiate a lease. You get a, a decent lease. Um, and then how many people do you need to see people? Well, yeah. I can take vitals. I can call patients. I, I don't need multiple people. I need one other person than myself. So my staff was me plus one, and that's it. And then you can keep your costs down, and you come up with a number that when people hear it say, well, that's pretty good. I can do that. So why isn't everybody doing this? I don't know. But we get, there's a whole generation of docs and providers coming up that have never really seen other than you're in the system, you do what the system says, the bean counter comes to you and says, oh, you know, you're, you're not pulling your weight. We need more people and more throughput, which is, is less it, time. Is it because of – here's a hypothesis. Is it because of the over – burdening costs of uh, medical education. I read somewhere that to become, uh, to get your medical license or medical degree, excuse me, it's, it's like over half a million in student loan debt right now. So like the desire and need to generate income is so high that they can't afford to not say yes to like these system-based hospital systems. They can't, they can't take the time to open a practice because the interest in debt due on half a million is, is no joke. Yeah, so it, it, it's part of the issue. And the other part of the issue is um, how entrepreneurial are these people? How much risk are they willing to assume? Mm. Uh, I can sign a contract, and for my specialty, depending on what it is, I have a guaranteed 200000 250000 a year. I'm, a, I'm an employee with W-2, and yeah. that's my salary, and I get yeah. benefits. And you can count on it. And I can count on yeah. it, and life is good. All I got to do is yeah. show up on time, see X number of people. 25 people home. a day. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. go home. Yeah. And rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, and yep. that's my life. Um, versus... If you're more entrepreneurial, which I've been through my life in a variety of ways, it's really an opportunity to do things right. And if you do things right, then the rest of it will follow. If you don't do it right, yeah, well, then you didn't do it right in the first place. It, it's also a big ask. You have to be a special person because, you know, I have a, I have a friend that, uh, that went to Duke here. She's an MD, PhD, and she's, she's done all the right jobs since then. But she has worked so hard just to become a doctor and then to go into the system and, and do all of the things that you guys have to do to, you know, to, you know, be an attending, to also throw on top of that, the challenges of running a business, which, you know, Albert and I, you know, run, run Diesel Jack Media and just that, you know, that's a challenge and we're just, all of our energy goes into that Never mind also having to see patients and solve those problems. I think you have to be a special person to want to do that, especially as a young person. Because, I mean, you know, I, I don't know, you know, most of my friends and acquaintances, when they finally become doctors, they're exhausted. <laughs> they're not thinking no. Now let me assume additional risk. Yeah, yeah. They got a huge debt profile. They're tired. They just made it. They've grinded through 10-plus years of extra school. Yeah. <laughs> so the funny thing for me, and again, this was a long time ago, early 80s, uh, my wife and I, of 40 years, we married before medical school. 
Oh, so it was the two bold, of us. That's a bold choice. How about that, right? <laughs> <laughs> so here we are, newly married, going to medical school. She's an aerospace engineer. Works for Martin Marietta. What a couple. Yeah. So if you well, that's more my speed. Like, I'm not, like, you know. Yeah. Well, if you can't be a rocket scientist, marry one. So that's what I did, right? So you marry a rocket scientist. She works at Martin Marietta Aerospace. Uh, so she has a job. We have yep. an income. Yep. You know what my uh, annual tuition was in medical school? What year was this again? Yeah, 1982, 83. 12 grand. You're almost there. Five. Five grand. I gotta look up what the median wage was back then. Maybe twenty four thousand. Uh, so, compared to what it is now, yeah, your your point is well taken. But that was not my reality. My reality was I graduated with a grand total of maybe twenty thousand dollars in debt. Wow. Period. So I was not behind the eight ball yeah. like these other guys yeah. are, and they are behind the eight ball. So yeah. I don't I don't know what that feels like. But if yeah. I was there, I would probably say, "Dude, give me something that I can count on." <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't want to, you know, hang myself out yep. and, and maybe fall yeah. flat on my face with that kind of debt. Yeah. Especially if you have a family, you have responsibilities. I get that. No, it's Hollywood's it's got huge. a factoid. Hang tight. Median wage in 1983 was $25,000. Hey, you were Median close. wage, 25000 You were very you close, were very Albert. Close. Yeah, so very 20%, close. 20% of the median wage could go get you a medical degree. Now, not even close. I think the median Correct. wage is like 70. I think I saw somewhere 70 is median. No, it's lower. It's well, lower than that. Yeah. Okay, so it doesn't matter if it was seventy because that's I think household. medical school is that's 80. household. Seventy okay. household. Fifty four thousand. Fifty four thousand Yeah, that can't get you through one year. And that's yeah, that's can't not even get your tuition at a lot of these places. <laughs> that's not even your tuition. And so, you know, broadly speaking then, you know, coming up at that time, different world, different cost structure, different expectations, mm. different different type of educational experience. So when you come out, um, you are going to do the way you were trained in most cases. And, and so my own kind of uh, epiphany in this whole thing occurred a few years later when I was in practice, and it was a Saturday. I wasn't working that day. We're driving through town, and my oldest girl, who at the time was about five years old, we're driving by the hospital. She looks at it and says, oh, Daddy's house. <laughs> Daddy's house. That was the last year I did any inpatient anything in medicine. Wow. <laughs> That was the last year. You know, I talk about a knife to the heart, right? But there it was. That was the degree of time that, that we were patient. expected to put into it to do that type of care where you are, you know, accepting somebody you've never seen before and say, well, I'm going to treat you like my mom, my sister. I'm going to be the quarterback. We're going to put this together. You're going to get the right answer. You know, come hell or high water, that's going to be the way it is. Mm-hmm. Man. Well, it is not like that now. <laughs> although though there are there are groups that are now kind of forming up in the same way that uh, that you started your practice, but it's doctors coming together and essentially cutting insurance out of it. I right. think I think it's like a monthly fee, you know, Concierge medicine. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a monthly mm-hmm. fee. But but I, it's not a I'm not talking about a big dollar amount. I mean, like I think people pay like forty dollars a month or something be, because most people don't need any you know major anything most of the time and it ends it ends up being a profitable model yeah so there's a primary care type of model that way and then you can kind of scale that and so what i was referring to as as concierge medicine is that higher dollar figure got it Um, it. and then you're you're basically getting a a doctor who's got a panel of between three and four hundred people let's say and they've prepaid for his annual service, hmm. essentially. 
So he's got guaranteed income. The, the thing that's expected of him is he's 24-7, 365 on the hook for these folks. So there's no disadvantage to them calling him, coming into the office. Uh, there's an expectation of good preventive care, comprehensive evaluations. So they are looking for Cadillac medicine, and they're looking for access to care, which is not impeded. Mm. He's looking for some sort of uh, reimbursement structure that's predictable. And that works for a lot of people. Uh, the, the disadvantage is that you've got to be a guy who's been around long enough that people would see that as valuable and want to, you know, engage in that kind of price model. So we're talking about, you know, a thousand a year, um, fifteen hundred a year. That's a deal. That's a deal. That's a deal. Yeah. 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 That's a that's a deal. I don't think most people have looked at their insurance bill. You're you're paying. Over a thousand a month. Um, for I'm sitting here going, do I need concierge? <laughs> <medicine?" laughs> like, what am you're I? You're probably do? paying. I mean, you're paying closer to twelve. If I had to pay for my insurance, um, when I got divorced, I had to pay for hers for three months. Nine hundred dollars a month. Yeah, it's a thousand ahead usually. Just for her. Yeah. Yeah. To continue what I had. Yep. Yeah, it's a thousand ahead usually a month. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, that's insane. This is it's so insane this sounds, when you really think about it. It's insane. Yeah. This three hundred guys paying a thousand a year. Albert, you want to start a want to start a medical company? Well, Doctor Cromwell's got to accept the money. <laughs> you know what I mean? You got to talk to him about. We got to talk to him about what his specialty is because this guy, he's at the top of his field. In before the, before we get into that, and we are <laughs> we are heading that way. So you you graduate uh, medical school. You are working in a uh, a hospital in Louisiana where you are asked to do a lot more than you are than a typical resident would be expected to do. You want to talk about that experience and how it kind of shaped you? Yeah. So actually there were a few dots in between. Okay. Uh, so fill, fill in those dots. So I, I get out of um, medical school and in my interest in medical school. Uh, so my specialty people say, well, you know, how did you decide the specialty you chose and when did you decide? So mm-hmm. Uh, remember, I was a chemist going to medical school. You measure things. Yep. So I went there with some simple questions. What kills people? Vascular disease. How do you stop that? We're not sure. Mm. And what are the options? And they start ticking off the things. One of them has to do with cholesterol and the particles that carry cholesterol. And saying, wait a minute, you measure that stuff, right? Yeah, well, I'll do that. I said, well, time out. Nobody does that. that that's not even a thing. Why, why do you think you can make a career out of doing that? Because you just told me. The number one killer of Americans, vascular disease, doesn't have a solution. This is high on the list, and nobody's doing it. So that sounds like something I should do. Wow. And so you deci- how, how young were you when you decided this? Like uh, well, I started medical school when I was 21, so I was about 23 years old. You started medical school when you were 21? Did you finish college in three years, or did you skip a grade earlier? Um, I was just the Doogie Hauser of my class. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Starting to get the impression he might be smarter than we are, Albert. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he didn't go Ivy League. That's crazy. <laughs> Money. It's a great motivator, especially when you don't have it. Oh, yeah. no, I'm anti-Ivy League. I'm anti all these kids that feel like it's unver- this unbelievable pressure to, yeah, me too. to do something. Yeah. 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 So, so I decide, you know, this is what I want to do. And there was a guy when I was in medical school, Alfredo Lopez, who ran the Olympic Clinic at Charity Hospital. And he was a, a big influence on my life. And I said, so how do I do just this? And he said, well, I don't know. Let's, let's kind of, you know, map out a course. You've got to be able to see everybody from kids to adults because from kids to adults have these problems. I said, well, what specialty does that for me? 
family medicine. Mm. All right, so I did a family medicine residency, knowing that I still wanted to do lipidology. So at the end of that, I did a lipidology fellowship. And at the end of that, I said, well, what do I do next? And the guy who was in charge of my training program said, go home. <laughs> You've been trained. Go home and do what you're supposed to do. So my first real job was in Kentucky in a 110-man multi-specialty group where I was allowed to start a lipid clinic. And that was a, a small clinic that was growing. And uh, basically, I, I learned a lot um, that as a junior partner, uh, you basically are the grunt. And uh, when things happen, uh, those on top are relatively insulated and those on the bottom are not. And what's important to them may not be important to you. Their long-term vision is not your long-term vision. So yeah. we came to a quick yeah. understanding that my, my future had capped out there. And so I was looking for some way to, to move forward. And through a variety of circumstances, I ended up in Florida um, being employed. A lot of great stories start that way. <laughs> <laughs> in, in a small town called Lake Wales, okay. Lake Wales, Florida, um, to start a lipid clinic, but to be part of a network of lipid clinics called the Florida Lipid Associates, which was a very unusual thing at the time. And so here I am in Lake Wales. This is where I'm, I have this epiphany, right? Working hard. Can you tell everybody, uh, I, I just want to take a quick step back. Tell everybody what a lipid is. And what's a lipid? Lipid is fat. And, and you have fats in your body and you have fats in your blood. And the two fats in your blood that people probably have heard a lot about, cholesterol and triglyceride. So <laughs> cholesterol is something every cell has to have for you to be alive. Uh, no cholesterol, you're dead. So anything we have to have to live, the body is pretty redundantly programmed to make or keep or otherwise find. So what most people don't know is the majority of your cholesterol is made in your body. You don't get it from your diet. Uh, the cholesterol in your blood is being trafficked, but it's not necessary for your cell's normal function. So we have this fat that's being made in our cells. It's also being trafficked in our blood. Well, our blood is mostly water. So how do fat and water get together to move things around without just having like a Crisco layer on the top? Well, there is a container that moves cholesterol and triglyceride around, and we call those containers lipoprotein particles. And these particles get letter names, LDL, HDL. LDL is low-density lipoprotein. HDL, high-density lipoprotein. So these particles that carry cholesterol are actually the things that are involved in blockage formation, vascular disease, etc. So um, that, to me, was pretty cool that, you know, we had the ability to know something about these things. Mm -hmm. And um, certain people, for various reasons, who had the wrong type and too many of them had lots of vascular disease. Uh, and then there were complications of, you know, well, not everybody with the same cholesterol number has the same risk. So what are we missing there? And so this goes back to my chemistry thinking days yep. of, okay, there's more to this. we got to learn the rules and learn the exceptions to the rules. And, and one of the things that was very interesting that most people still do not know is that we do cholesterol testing because it's cheap and easy, and it's supposed to infer something about the particles that are carrying the cholesterol around. Wait a second, because we get commercials all the time about your cholesterol. <laughs> You're saying that it's, it's just because it's cheap? Cholesterol does not cause coronary disease. And there there is no it. good because cholesterol. <laughs> there is no bad your cholesterol. Your Italian family has had high <laughs> cholesterol. Yeah, so for quite some time, but so, everyone lives a long life. So where where my family, my the Italian side of my family grew up in Scopoli, cholesterol is extremely everyone 
like I, I when I was a wrestler, like cutting weight, I still had higher cholesterol. Um, but we don't have any history on my Italian side of like heart disease or you know anything like that. So there's the rest of the story here. And, <laughs> and, and the rest of the story, it goes in a couple of different directions. But, but one part of the story is that the relationship between cholesterol and blockage is a little bit complicated. Um, there is a certain amount of cholesterol in a particle. There's a certain amount of coffee in my cup, mm. right? Now, the amount of coffee in my cup is not static. I'm drinking the coffee. Sure. It's going to be more when I start and less when I finish, right? Well, for various reasons, the amount of cholesterol in a particle is also not static. It can be more. It can be less. So why is that an issue? If I measure the cholesterol in LDL particles, LDL cholesterol, mm -hmm. are these particles full of cholesterol? Are they partially empty? Are they mostly empty? So if I want to measure how many cups are on the table... I could do that, count cups, or I could pour all the coffee out and say, how much coffee do I have, and assume a certain amount of coffee per cup and say, well, for a gallon, I should have this many oh. cups. That's what LDL cholesterol is. It's a guesstimate if you assume a certain amount all the time. So not, not to make this too complicated, if you and I have LDL cholesterol that's the same, I could have a radically different number of LDL particles. Got it. It's the number of particles that is driving blockage formation. When cholesterol and particle number agree, they predict risk equally well. Huh. When cholesterol and particle number disagree, risk always tracks with particle number, no exceptions in any population ever studied in the history of medicine. Wow. Okay, Period. so, and so, so if I have high cholesterol, high LDL, which is the bad. you have a lot of particles. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's actually how many particles I have in my blood because I can have high LDL but not a lot of particles, so it won't matter. So if you think about, you know, there's high and there's low. Yeah. And, and in my world, what I call high may be a little higher than what you're talking about, right? <laughs> so, you know, there's like really, really high, glow-in-the-dark high, and there's really, really low. So at the extremes, there is good agreement between cholesterol and particle number. If you have very little, you'll have little either measure. If you have a very high amount, both measures will be high. But in the middle is where all hell breaks loose. And in the middle is where most of us find ourselves trying to make decisions, mm. right? So let's say, for the sake of argument, we're talking about a 50 to 150 LDL cholesterol. Th there's so much difference between particle number and cholesterol in many populations that you can't rely on cholesterol as the metric that tells you I'm good, I'm bad. You're going to need more information. So, so just on the surface of is my LDL a problem, is LDL a particle whose number you're actually measuring, or are you guessing based on the cholesterol in LDL? And almost every doctor is looking at LDL cholesterol because that's what's cheap and easy. Mm. And because it's cheap and easy, we assume that if it's okay, the patient's okay. So this is where a another chapter of my life opened up, right? So I'm, I'm doing this lipoprotein stuff in Florida. I'm in this group. Life is good. Uh, my wife and I think we're probably going to stay there for a really long time. 
we, we have this little ranch house. We bought the lot next to us. We had dr- plans drawn up to extend our house. Uh, three of my kids were, you know, born there. So this is all good. And then one day I was giving a lecture in Raleigh in about 1995. And I, the guy who was driving me for the day said, do you want to be a man who can measure lipoproteins? And I said, well, that'd be a good trick because measuring a particle is not easy. Now, just to be clear, this wasn't just like an Uber driver or something. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> this was a drug rep. <laughs> you know, like, I can uh, measure lipoprotein. <laughs> and that's how I met. You know? This was a drug rep. Um, and so I go to this office, and I, I meet this tall, lanky fellow in blue jeans and Hirachis looking at NMR spectra. So nuclear magnetic resonance is one of those, those uh, machines that we would do with chemistry labs to figure out how much of something you have. Mm. So NMR testing is commonly done in various industries, and he's using NMR to tell something about lipoproteins. So we're looking at them, and I'm saying, well, what are you doing? He, he tells me. And I'm looking. I said, well, so you can resolve downfield shifts that are that small. He said, well, you know something about this. Well, it doesn't seem like you should be able to do that. Well, you really know something about this. So, so, so help me understand how you're doing what you say you're doing. And at the end of some back and forth over several weeks, I said, so tell me how you're going to do enough clinical trials to see if this makes a difference. And that's when our relationship took off. Hmm. And that guy's name is Jim Otvos. He started a company called LipoMed that became LipoScience. I was the 15th employee of this company that nobody ever heard of before. So you can imagine, I go home and tell my wife, I met a guy who can measure the thing that's important. We're going to move to Raleigh. We're going to do what? We don't know anybody there. I said, well, if he's right, this is going to be a game changer. And was she on board with that? She was okay with that after a while. Now, at this point, <laughs> is, is she still working uh, in the engineering space? or? Well, she, she kind of physically disengaged. Uh, so she was working during uh, my medical school years. And then as kids started coming, she would step back a little bit. So she taught in the university for a while. Then she ran the computer system for the university for a while. And then she stepped back to wanting to be a full-time homeschool mom, which she did for our five kids. I bet your kids are really dumb. They probably don't know (laughs) it. They probably don't know anything. My mom's a rocket engineer. My My dad's a doctor. (laughs) Studying lipoproteins. What's that? I have no clue. No clue. My dad says it's going to save What do you want to do, son? Art. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be a social media influencer. <laughs> Funny you should say that because oh, my no. oldest girl oh, is no. an influencer. Oh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Absolutely. So so my, my two oldest girls, uh, were all of my girls, but, you know, they, they went in totally artistic directions, all of them. Um, my son is a software engineer, and my youngest, who's a senior at Baylor, is interested in physical therapy. So, so the boys have kind of a, a scientific edge to them, and, and the girls are very creative. They didn't get it from me. My right brain is a two-by-four. It holds my left brain up. <laughs> <laughs> so they got it from mom, not from me. <laughs> so what, what are they, what are they uh, influencers in, or what is their art? Uh, well, Kaylee is in the hair space, hair okay. and makeup. All right. Uh, so she's done very well there. Uh, my youngest girl is with a company called Offline, which is a food community uh, company. It's really cool, post-COVID. Yeah. How do you make connections again? Well, this company helps you by uh, having a member basis. You, you have a subscription, and then you get discounted opportunities through the month to go to cool places and cool. do events or, or have a meal, and you, you tip off the base, but you get uh, a discount. And so that's taken off in several cities, and she's uh, working in that space. 
Uh, so, uh, middle girl has done a lot of things, got a theater background, and has you know worked in, in a lot of uh, different uh, things related to that. So, all very artistic. By awesome. my count, that's five children. Five kids. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's good. Trying trying to keep up. See, you've you've met. You're, this is like you guys should be best friends. <laughs> you know what I mean? Nick's got six kids. Got you six. got five. Yeah. Well, there you go. You're a yeah, doctor. Cool. Yep. He's got an agency. Like what? Yeah. <laughs> Same. Yeah. I mean, you know, mine are all different. They're all completely different. You know, same oh, yeah. same thing. Like you can't you can't same parent. You know, you can't predict. Yeah. You can't predict where what direction kids are going to go. True. Know? And and to be fair, you know, even though I have a, a you know an engineering degree. I'm, you know, and, and the MBA, which is not a good use of money. Uh, I am more of an of an art creative type than I am. I just can do the math. <laughs> it's just but I'd rather be I'd rather be writing and creating and storytelling. But I but I can do the math. So oh, that's cool. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah. So we had this this company, <laughs> this this company, LipoMed LipoScience. And, and our deal was we could use this fancy machine in NMR to quantify, count the number of different lipoproteins in a way that nobody could do before. Wow. And um, we were very fortunate that there were people who were interested in trying to understand if that could add information to their studies. So we had a big clinical trial business. Um, many millions, like 15 million samples later and 600 peer-reviewed publications later, we learned a few things. How do you do 15 million samples? Y you have a team. How big, we, is, how big is a team? Well, so at its apex at LipoScience, we had the world's largest diagnostic NMR laboratory with 15 or 16 machines running. 24-7. Yeah, and, and then yeah. all the infrastructure to support that and the sales force to support that and a yeah. business structure to support that. And so this, this is a company that was acquired by LabCorp. Uh, I've heard of them. Yeah, so <laughs> that was the exit strategy. LabCorp bought the company, and then Jim and I were asked, along with others, to stay on for a while. So I stayed on with LabCorp for about five years. Um, and uh, during that time, I tried to interest them in some things that didn't quite resonate. Uh, what was interesting to me was, going back to the idea of trying to do the right thing one person at a time, yep. um, we, we talked about the, the nuance of what you measure, but is that all there is to it? The answer is no. Right. So what's the, the other detail we're missing? Mm. Well, there's a lot. Uh, there, there are a lot of things that come together to make Nick's risk or my risk or Albert's risk unique. Mm. OK, so so that requires integration. And I thought LabCorp being a really big information management company. That, they, that they'd be all about. That. Oh, yeah. So, you know, here's what you can do to differentiate yourself in the marketplace. You could acquire yeah. medical history, biomarkers biometrics we could apply various decision trees and we could we could come up with a highly personalized insight that would differentiate you from everybody else no and because labs are what they do well and they wanted to continue sure. to do labs well and that yeah. was fine but that integration didn't find a home yep so i took a package and i left and uh, was thinking how do i make this so as an n of one I'm going through harmonizing like six sets of international guidelines and what are called risk-enhancing factors, these 30 or 40 things that you're supposed to know. And, and the guidelines are all saying, you know, if you're going to do the job right, you're supposed to sit down and have this shared decision-making conversation mm -hmm. where you and I say, okay, here's the history and all the things that are important. We put it together, and at the end of the day, 
this is who you are. This is your snapshot. What are we going to do about it? Now, docs do that on the fly as best they can in a homebrew way. Wouldn't it be nice if they didn't have to do it in a homebrew way? Wouldn't it be nice if it, we even took it off their plate? They, they could just say, I want that thing. The patient gives the information. Everything happens behind the scene. They get a very informative report. And now that whole process is made easy and simple, and there's no reason not to do it. And, and that was my, my idea. Now, mm. I'm not a programmer. I'm not you know, a computer guy. I, I can do it manually, so I do it manually. And uh, what's interesting is a friend of yours and now a friend of mine um, uh, came to me through a mutual friend. And so this mutual friend uh, said, I, I got this young guy who I think can help you, and that's Matt Martin. And Matt and I met, and we talked through this. Now, this is in the middle of COVID, right? This is 2020, early 2020. Yep. And we think, this got legs. And so here's a guy who has you know, a set of skills I don't have, who's worked in the space where he has relationships with people who wouldn't be necessary to program and get the stuff together. And we decide, yeah, we can do this. And we, we form a company having never met each other. <laughs> we had never met each other. That's wild. And we incorporate. That's wild. April 20, 2020. Yep. Right? Yeah, you and guys were three start, years starting later, about the same time we were starting. And, and we're still in business, amazingly enough, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so here, here's this story, right? So, you know, Matt and Bill work together to try to come up with a minimally viable product, and that does okay. And then we do the, the, the full Monty. And then we improve as we go, and we get to the point that we are now. And, um, yeah, our, our goal is to say if the guidelines suggest you need to take this information and put it together, we'll put it together for you. And we'll make it so that you don't have to worry about missing details mm. that are very important to know your risk of diabetes, heart attack, and stroke. All the details will be there. And more importantly, if you make a change, diet, exercise, medication, you can track and see if it's working. And do you guys, like, explain everybody, so, you know, essentially, you know, a person that is interested in this would, they'd sign up, they'd fill out some information, then they would go to a lab, have blood drawn, this is, uh, stop me if I mess any of this up, and then those results are sent to you, they get input into your system, and that spits out a result. And then what, what are you telling a person that has done this? Like, what do they receive? So, so that's the, like, the process like, is, is spot on. Mm -hmm. um, um, if you wanted to get a report, you could order one for yourself. Or if your doctor wanted to get a report, he could order it. So it's, it's a, a B to X model, right? So you can go to the consumer, you can go to the doc, you can do either way. So at the end, either thing happens, you get a survey. And the survey is a smart survey to ask questions. If you say no, it turns things off. If it says yes, it turns things on. It takes about five minutes. Mm -hmm. You fill out the information. The next thing you get is a lab requisition that says go to LabCorp. Get these labs drawn as part of the cost of the report. You don't have to pay anything. So you just show up. LabCorp is not going to charge you. They get the right labs. That gets run in a couple of days. And then when the information comes back, 100 pages of algorithm, and boom, you get this report. And the report is uh, several pages long, and it unpacks for you your risk for diabetes, heart attack, and stroke. Mm. And it begins by looking at... Imagine a media agency that can make a documentary that qualifies for Academy Award voting. Imagine another that created a billboard charting music video for Five for Fighting. Imagine... 
another that has raised so much money for nonprofits in its first year working on the classy.org platform that at the end of the year, it was named as only the second marketing partner in Classy's history. Imagine another firm that can cover your events anywhere on planet Earth and provide a compelling series of videos about those events immediately and to your needs. And imagine another still that can help your e-commerce business take it to the next level. Now imagine that they're all the same business, Diesel Jack Media. Some of you might be saying, hey, Nick, isn't that your company? And to that I answer, can a company like Diesel Jack Media really be owned? Or can it merely be coaxed out like a beautiful butterfly on a spring day? As you listen to this podcast that, by the way, Diesel Jack Media created, you may be asking yourself, what's our secret? It's simple. We try not to suck. Sounds easy, right? It should be. But somehow, marketing companies and media agencies always seem to get it wrong. You see, we don't make PowerPoints about doing work. We do the work because we like the work. And if one of our ideas doesn't work, you know what we do? We try another one again and again and again until our ideas start to work. Because not quitting until it's right is at the heart of not sucking. And as previously mentioned... That's what we try not to do here. Diesel Jack Media. We try not to suck. Visit us at dieseljackmedia.com. That is dieseljackmedia.com. Uh, metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance. And some of your audience has heard about insulin resistance. It's kind of a, a term that's out there. But it's basically, um, is your body reacting normally to insulin? If you are insulin resistant, you're set up for diabetes, heart attack, and stroke. So that's kind of a common soil that grows those things. And, and there are ways to determine that. that and, and the report itself is very graphic. It's a series of bars that are green on one end and red on the other. Green is good, red is bad. Mm -hmm. Right? So I've never heard of insulin resistance before. It says, insulin resistance. How are my cells working with insulin? Red, bad. I see red. What do most people good. receive? I know that's such an open-ended question, but like the average human being, the average American, what does their report come back looking like? Are they happy or unhappy? Uh, we have opportunities. <laughs> opportunities. <laughs> we have for opportunities for improvement. Yeah. Well, like I was telling Dr. Cromwell. I, I, I know you that, use this. Yeah. Cr now that I saw that Crustables is a billion-dollar business, like, yeah, we have problems. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I don't know if you guys saw Hostess Cakes just got bought for like $5.5 billion. It's not because they ain't selling Hostess Cakes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, we got problems. I got problems. I like sugar. It's bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so this is the thing is we have, as you know, a, a population that's increasingly obese, mm -hmm. sedentary, insulin resistant. Um, you know, we, uh, evolution-wise, have this thrifty gene. Uh, in the hunter-gatherer societies, a meal's not promised to anybody. So when you eat, you burn the energy and store what you have left over. Why? Because tomorrow, if you're not going to eat, I need to tap into something you or something. you're going to die, yeah. right? So we got this thrifty gene. That's cool. Unless you're being fed three times a day and you're sedentary. And now we are overloading the system with, you know, calories and fat and mm. things. They have to somehow, you know, find a home. And this sets us up for failure. So I'm going to ask you a very complicated question, and I'm looking for a simple answer. Generic, generic American, they want to improve their health in the, for these three risks significantly. What should their life look like if you were drawing that up? So I'm going to make two statements. If they're 
insulin-resistant, then they need to avoid excess carbs. They need to be physically active. They need to maintain a reasonable body weight. If they are insulin-sensitive, then the question is, what else is going on that can inform their choices for diet and exercise? So the simple answer is there is no one diet that's right for everybody. But there's a big fork in the road. And the big fork in the road is insulin-sensitive, insulin-resistant. That's the big fork in the road. And if you know which fork you're on, then there is a strategy that works in each one, but it's not the same. Um, What I see happening in the diet industry, and you've probably seen this as well, is you you generalize about a lot of things. You uh, point out that things are not getting better, but you have cracked the code, and now you do my diet, and life is good. And then you sell lots of books or product or whatever, and you make you know money, money, money. Sure. Some people do get better, and their testimonials drive a certain amount of you know, consumer behavior. And then the others are just falling flat on their face. And then I see these patients who have tried XYZ diet times many unsuccessfully. Now they're frustrated. But at the end of the day, was there any effort made to figure out metabolically which path are you on? And then the other thing, and this, this is a whole different rabbit hole, is, you know, limiting carbohydrates mean many different things to many different people. There's not eating refined and processed carbs. There's capping the amount of carbs at some amount. And then there is highly restrictive carbohydrate intake like keto diets. And these are not the same thing. Sure. And people can react in different ways. And there are different groups out there that are very invested in certain approaches. Of course. Uh, and yeah, that's so how they make their money. That's exactly right. So, so with all of these variations on a theme, y- you have to give people some opportunity to try on for size an approach that can be tuned. You, you can keto your way as a bridge to something, but that may or may not be sustainable for somebody. Mm. And it may not be as necessary as simply avoiding the grains the pastas, the breads, the refined sugars, the cakes, cookies, pies, ice cream, candy, how quickly it rolls off my tongue, right? People <laughs> say, well, that's half my diet. That's 100% of your problem. <laughs> can, I cold, can I cold plunge that out of my system? <laughs> can I sauna that out? <laughs> or anything else, right? That doesn't Joe Rogan me. said I should just sauna and cold plunge. Boom. <laughs> Done. Get all the sugar out right there. Yeah. Is there a, you know, I know, I know you don't, I know you're reticent to say this, but like, if you weren't, if you did not have access to that information of whether they are sensitive or resistant, what would your generic health advice be for the population? Um, Is eating three times a day too much so if, you're, if you're not an athlete? The, the two principles would be to eat foods that are minimally processed in their natural state, a wide variety of them. That'd be number one. Number two is you should let hunger be your guide. Uh, You don't have to have three meals a day. Artificial eating three times a day is frequently unnecessary. If you're hungry, eat. If you're not hungry, you don't need to eat necessarily, right? Um, If we had nothing else other than I want a general diet that works, a Mediterranean eating pattern, has some of the best outcome (laughs) data associated with it. So if you look at diet studies asking the question, what approach decreases heart attacks and strokes the best with existing data? It's a Mediterranean eating pattern. Um, And that, as you know, is, you know, foods minimally processed, food pairings. um, And I think it's a reasonable way. It gives people lots of alternatives. 
um, and you're staying away from some of the common traps, the fast foods, the processed foods, the junk foods that are you know, not going to be nutritious. Sure. And then it's activity, uh, you know, move. The Mediterranean diet helps the Mediterranean steps. <laughs> and so <laughs> when I was in Greece uh, visiting uh, on a vacation, I was amazed how much I was walking, mm-hmm. right? So outside in the U.S., we walk a lot when we're on vacation, and all that activity complements whatever diet you're trying to, to be. So if, if we get people moving regularly, yep. eating in some reasonable way, like a Mediterranean diet, uh, a lot of things might trend in the right direction, and then it's a matter of what's sustainable. And, and that's kind of my, my pet peeve, is that people go from a point of dissatisfaction, and I'm going to do something wholesale, I'm going to clean out my closet or clean out my fridge. I'm, I'm going to you know, only eat cardboard, whatever it is. I'm yeah. going to say extreme. And it's not sustainable. Yeah, you can do it for a couple months and then you're sick of it. Right. Yeah. So the other thing that kind of feeds into that is intermittent fasting. So you're asking, do you need three meals a day? No, eat when you're hungry. Well, the other idea there is intermittent fasting where you say, if I were to eat a certain number of hours a day and then not eat the rest of the time, what would that do for me? Um Eight hours is a good window to start with. So if I had calories for eight hours and 16 hours I just stayed hydrated with no calories, you would force your body during those non-calorie-consuming hours to hunt for energy from your fat stores, and you would become more insulin-sensitive. And that would help this whole you know, problem of uh, spiraling insulin resistance to step back and say, really, you know, don't give the puppy a treat. The puppy will follow you everywhere. You don't need to keep feeding your body twenty four seven. And what's going to happen when I'm not between the hours of say ten a.m. and six p.m. or noon and eight p.m.? Well, if you if you get into that pattern, and that's something you can adapt to, and now you can sustain during the eight p.m. to the next day when you start, your body will get all the energy it needs from your stores. You, you got many 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 weeks of energy stored in your body. You you will not do poorly. What about people that, uh, you know, they go hard in the paint when they intermittent fast and they mow it down? Like, they feel ravenous at the 12 o'clock. I don't know this person, but you know what I mean? They feel <laughs> ravenous at 12 o'clock, and they actually think, I think they might overeat because they yeah. think they're ravenous, but they're, you said that they're not. Well, it's an adaptation process, right? Yeah. So for people who are going from A to B, and, and B is this eight-hour window, you may need a transition. So I talk to people about, let's make it a 12-hour window first. And then we'll shrink it to a 10-hour window. And then we'll shrink it to an 8-hour window. And then the question is, how do you stack your calories so that you get satiety so you don't get ravenous? And so some of that is you can start with protein or fat. You can hold carbs to the end of the meal. You can start with the slowly digested carbs like the greens and then not have the rapidly absorbed carbs until later. A lot of the times we're we're reaching for things that are quick hits, quick energy in and out, sure. and it's not giving us the satiety, right? What kind of snacks do people have? You know, do they have something like an almond or something that is going to stick with them for a longer period of time? Some of it's behavior. You know, are you in an environment where eating is associated with behavior or the trigger that you're in, right? Go to a bar. Uh, that's an environment. That's not your your living room in most cases. So same sort of thing is how do you construct your environment so that you have options that are reasonable and you're going through a progression of foods that is more likely to stay with you and give you satiety. And then you're compressing this time frame in a controlled way where you're not 
you know, having to start at eight hours. And you're, you, but your goal is, and you're, you're bought into this. Your goal is, I'm going to get there. Yep. But I don't need to get there in one step. And I'm going to just gradually work mm-hmm. my way into there. Very interesting. I, there's a lot of people that um, associate with your outward appearance with health. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know as a doctor, you've seen people that are like maybe triathletes, maybe even more fit than that, get heart attacks, possibly oh, yeah. die or something like that. What, how does that happen? How, do, how can you be so physically fit on the outside but so sick on the inside? How does, that, how does that happen? Well, that gets us back to this more comprehensive look at risk. So the factors that put people at risk for blockage formation can include genetics. It can include lipoproteins. It can include metabolic disorders. It can include what we call comorbidities, other medical issues that don't uh, have any association with how fit you look on the outside. So you're looking more comprehensively at this. Mm-hmm. And, and there are many examples of things that can be stirring the pot under the surface that you don't see. Some of it can be an unintended consequence. So uh, to be in that sort of physical shape, some people go to an extreme. And in their extreme state, they happen to have very high lipoprotein particles, very high LDL. Interesting. And this is driving more blockage formation in many people. And yet, again, if, if they're cutting, if they're trying to go to a really hardcore keto, high-fat diet, and they're cutting and they're doing that, some people do that just fine. Some people have uh, a response which is an aberrantly high LDL response. And if it's sustained for a long period of time, that can be a problem. That's interesting. Uh, and the other thing is, you know, did you have a plaque or a blockage before you started on this journey to try to get to be that physical appearance? Uh, this is now becoming more common that people do some type of imaging to see, do I have an early blockage? If you do, then you're in that group that needs aggressive care so the blockage doesn't grow and misbehave to give you a heart attack or a stroke. If you're in the camp that we don't detect any blockage, the urgency is less, and we have much more uh, time on our side. Where how we can do, make how does a person test for that, and who should test for that? Well, there, there are both ultrasound and x-ray ways to find blockage. And the different modalities have strengths and weaknesses. Who would I check? I would check anybody who is concerned due to family history, biomarkers. Um, you should actually ask yourself who shouldn't be looked at at some point rather than who should be. What age would you say you should have this done by? Um, so in the 40s is not an unusually <coughs> late time to, to think of it. Um, if I have somebody in my world with a family history of lots of vascular disease, they have an inherited disorder of lipoprotein metabolism, um, I might be looking in their 20s. Wow. Hmm. I, I have people who referred to so a large part of my practice um, before I went into full-time research was uh, having people sent to me with the question, does this person have early blockage? I'd see 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, image them, and in many cases find early blockage. Are there any symptoms or signs that, like, a otherwise, you know, a person that thinks of themselves as healthy would feel or see or whatever that would point to an early blockage? None. No, so the only way is yeah, to there's a, there was a something I read once that, like, the, a lot for a lot of people, or I don't know what percentage of people, the first sign of heart disease is the heart attack. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I've heard that. That's correct. So th- there are no symptoms, and, and this gets into a, a funny little um, digression, and that is that, you know, plaques that form and cause heart attacks. When I was in medical school, 
the model was big blockage caused big heart attacks. So if my tube is this big around and it's being filled up with a plaque, that if I get down to 10% of a hole left, a 90% blockage, you better watch out because that guy's getting ready to have a heart attack. What we now know is that 75% of heart attacks are caused by blockages that don't limit blood flow. Wow. They are living in the wall of the artery. They have a thin cap that can crack. And if the plaque cracks, then a clot forms and stops blood flow. Wow. So what's happening is people have these culprit lesions, these vulnerable plaques in the wall of their arteries, not limiting blood flow, not causing any symptoms, and they are at risk. Now, if you can find them, you can do things to stabilize a plaque. Mm. And that would significantly reduce their risk for heart attack and stroke down the road. Did, you've mentioned this, and I'm just reading through what you're saying. Can the plaque in your arteries, like if you have any type of buildup in your veins, whatever, can that naturally go away? Or does it have, because you said black, like, or does it have to be scoped? Or it basically once it's there, it's going to be there until, I don't know. Does it naturally go away? I guess that's the first question. No, it doesn't naturally go away. But really? the natural history of it is variable. So a, a blockage can um, grow to a certain size and stop. In some cases, it continues to grow. And uh, if you're thinking about it like a tire, this is like an outrounded tire. The stuff in the wall begins to grow out before it grows in. So early blockage, living in the wall of the artery, not limiting the amount of blood flow, growing outward, still not limiting blood flow, eventually growing inward, and that's where some amount of flow limitation begins. Mm. So in my world, we talk about flow limiting and non-flow limiting blockage. The non-flow limiting is the one that causes most heart attacks. Interesting. Non-flow limit. So <laughs> yeah, so it doesn't limit blood flow. And, and why is that important? Because get a stress test, right? Yeah. So let's go get checked out, get a stress test. Well, what does a stress test do? If they woof you up, you, you work real hard, and they're looking for EKG changes, symptoms, blood pressure changes, indicative of potentially decreased blood flow. Well, you would have to lose about half of your flow for stress test to typically be abnormal. Huh. So what happens if you have a normal stress test? Does that mean that you have no blockage? Absolutely not. Does a normal stress test mean that you are not at risk for heart attack? It does not. It means that over a period of time, the rate of heart attacks is relatively less, but it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Hmm. So we, we see this a lot with people. I have a bad family history. I have risk factors. I got a stress test. I'm good. Therefore, nothing to see here. Yeah. Another point of view is, do you have blockage? either by ultrasound or by x-ray. Oh, you have blockage. Now we need to fix the blockage. So when I see, especially younger guys, and they're trying to process this, you know, you're telling me... Oh, yeah, I'm basically scared right now. Well, I'm not scared. (laughs) (laughs) No, not scared, but, but like, now I'm like, huh, like, these are all... These are all things. Well, I mean, it's counterproductive to, I think, the or not counterproductive, but it is counter to the general accepted belief that, you know, if you eat right and work out, you... Or okay. Yeah. Right? Because if you have, because what doctor's saying is, like, if you already have a blockage, it doesn't, doesn't go away naturally. doesn't go away. Right. right. So you would say that person would have to have surgery. No. So no, that, that what person would you needs aggressive risk factor management, okay. including aggressive lowering of LDL and the particles that cause blockage. Okay. 
Um, and this gets us to you know, what is now the state of the art in managing cholesterol. In my day, starting out, it was make numbers go down. <laughs> I have drugs. I'm not afraid to use them. If I don't like your number, I give you more drugs. And we play this game until your numbers get to some pre-assigned point that's okay. Now, we start the conversation differently. We start the conversation, do you have blockage? Answer yes, that's going to be a treatment pathway. Answer no, what else do we know about you? Got it. Do you have other reasons to be very high risk and need to be on medication? So it's all about treating to prevent the heart attack, not treating to make the number better. So this puts a premium on what we are talking about before. Do you have all the information you need? Did it come together in mm. a single report so you see the details you need to do it? Because now the guidelines say this forms the basis of shared decision-making. Should you take a statin? Should you be on a medication? Is diet and exercise doing enough? Well, how do you know? Yeah. Do you have a blockage? Well, yep. if the answer is yes, I, I, I tell the young guys, you know, just, I'm not getting it, Doc. Okay. What's your name? Fred. Excellent. When your wife says, what doctors say? My name's Fred and I have vascular disease. Well, that's harsh. No, that's fact. Now, either own it and fix it or it's going to fix you. Can't fix it if you don't own it. Mm. Yeah. I'm not worried about something happening. You have it. This is your pregnancy test. It's positive. But it's not a bouncing baby. What it's, it's a blockage that's going to get you. What percentage of Americans have vascular disease? It's the number one cause of death. And depending on how you define it in subsets of individuals, yep. uh, a large number, a third, 40 percent. It's like the walking dead. What's that? I think well, well Albert already does. Well, that's why you got to plug the product now. Well, so yeah. I'm <clears throat> so tell us about your business. Where can we go? Check it out. Right. So Precision Health Reports is the name of the company. And the product is called a cardiometabolic risk report. So you can go to precisionhealthreports.com, and there's information there about that. And what we have found is that there are groups of individuals for whom this problem is embedded, deeply embedded. First responders, police, firefighters, military, uh, people with hypervigilant states, people with lots of stress, usually very insulin resistant with or without the body type that uh, you think of with insulin resistance. And so we've partnered with several different police departments and others uh, over time. So you found this problem a lot in first responders. Oh, absolutely. Military. Well, crap. Yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you, you look at the operator community. Yeah. Absolutely. You, you look at, at anybody who's in this hypervigilant, mm. you know, constant on state. Uh, what's happening there is they get <clears> lots of – adrenaline and counter-regulatory hormones and their sleep cycles are all messed up yep uh they're not necessarily the most nutritionally savvy in the world because they're <laughs> just trying to survive and they're on mres or something else or they're they're in the field eating bugs or whatever you know but yeah, yeah that that's that's the kind of i don't of remember ever eating bugs just you know i don't remember that sorry you never maybe maybe, bugs? maybe it was maybe <laughs> it was different maybe desert storm was different <laughs> Uh, I think SARS was one of those books. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do want to ask you, I, I know we're going backwards. Yeah, yeah. But I think, I, I, I wonder if it, it wasn't a defining uh, means for how you practiced medicine. But when, you know, prior to the, the show starting, you know, you said that you got called to Desert Storm. Originally, you thought you were going to be, you know, 50 miles from the border you end up being over, you know, uh, 
in Iraq. And the thing that I found very interesting was you had no, you really had no kind of systems available to assess anything, but you were handling, I'm assuming, casualties. Correct. You had to make all these determinations based solely on what you saw happening. What was the impact of that on your, on your uh, medical profession? So I was in a MASH hospital, and we were uh, embedded with First Armor. So when 7th Corps went north, we were in that column going north. Uh, they took a dogleg right, they dropped the hospital. So there we are. Um, and for that 100 hours of active battle, you know, there were a lot of casualties came in and out. And uh, even after that, we had lots and lots of casualties, unexploded ordinances and you know various other reasons. Sure. And so here I am in an environment which was supposed to backhaul people very quickly. It was supposed to stabilize and get them out. Well, what happens when they're 72 hours plus and they are not getting out? Now they've had enough time to get into medical complications. So in this MASH hospital, you got 16 surgeons and me. I'm not a surgeon. I'm the medical guy. So what do I have as in my toolkit? What, what can I work with? X-ray, not working. Labs, I can get a sodium, a potassium, and a hemoglobin. That's it. Meds. The only meds we had were meds that I could pilfer from an evac hospital before we did the push. Wow. So I had nothing, and I talked to my CEO. <laughs> I said, look, give me a five-ton and some guys, and I'll go down to evac hospital where they're playing volleyball and see if I can't talk them out of some stuff because I, I need something to play with. You got, you know, tourniquets and this and that and the others, and you're, you're yeah. doing but I need my stuff. So sure enough, you know, I was able to go back and get some things that would you know, be helpful. I brought that forward, and so, you know, we made our hop. We did our stuff. And i just give you one example. I'm going through the post-op ward, and there's a guy who had an abdominal injury. He had a bowel resection, and he's on a cardiac monitor. And you're watching QRS T-waves, and the T-wave is the last little bit of that blippy thing. And it's a mountain. It's huge, huge T-waves. You're thinking, this guy probably has very high potassium. Well, I have a sodium and potassium and hemoglobin. Sure enough, he had life-threatening high potassium. Mm. All right, now how am I going to get this guy down? I ended up giving him glucose in one line and insulin in the other. It's an old-fashioned way to drive down potassium intracellularly as you give a balanced amount of glucose and insulin to drive it intracellularly. And we got him stabilized and we got him out. Wow. But that's, again, going back to you know my medical training of think broadly. What can I do? With what's what the I, physiology? What, I what can I do with what I have? Yep. I got these things. Will any of this work? Okay, and that's not I can much. Do this. That's not much. <laughs> that's right. But but you get, you know, it's uncomfortable, but you you gain some confidence that yeah, you you do have enough that you can step in and and do some some good things. And there are times when you can't, but there are times when you can. Mm. And so, you know, I worked with some amazing people in in theater. Um, there are a lot of operators that I worked with that were amazing guys in theater. Uh, I'll give you one other little antidote. This <laughs> shows, you know, kind of the, the fluid situation we were in. Um, I'm in the ER, and we get a call from uh, a transport that says that a guy got bit by a snake, sand viper, and they're coming to my place. I said, well, what does he look like? I said, say again, what does the soldier look like? Well, he's sweating, and the bite site is huge and red. Okay, he's been envenomated. Keep flying. I have nothing. I have no <laughs> anti-venom. I have nothing. <laughs> My orders are to drop there. Don't drop here. You got to keep flying. I got nothing. I hear the rotor wash. Here comes, you know, the Blackhawk. I go out to Blackhawk. Do not take that litter off. 
That's my order. If you take that litter off, this guy's going to die. That's on you. Either spin up and get out, or you drop this guy, and I can do nothing. So he spins up. He's gone. Next thing, a few minutes later, I get this full bird. Give me what for. How dare you? Yeah. Right? It Carl. was the aviation commander, right? Yeah. And I let him blow for a while, and I said, sir, I'm sorry, but I don't know anything about flying helicopters, and you don't know anything about treating soldiers. I got nothing to help his problem. In my opinion, he'd likely die if he dropped here. He came back a couple of months later, and he said, you remember me? No. I'm that guy. <coughs> I'm that guy. Went to the evac hospital. They said, you made the right call. They gave me some anti-venom, you know, and, and yeah. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. What else could help him? That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. But it That's was awesome. just do the right thing. Yeah. I mean, know your limits. Yeah. And if you know, dude, I, I Yeah, but most, pe- most people would have just not wanted to take the crap from the colonel and would have just taken the guy. And, yeah, you're right. What are you going to do? Yeah. Suck out the poison. I know. I know. I think that's only in the movies. <laughs> yeah. Is that yeah. not real? I don't think that works in real life. I think you both end up with poison. You know? <laughs> no, but, but, uh, but he was a cool guy, and, and I got to know some of the guys that he worked with, and we, we did some things together. Oh, that's uh, awesome. So, yeah. That's awesome. But, you know, like I said, it was, at the end of the day, it was, it was a good experience in a couple of different ways. It was, it was good because for a young guy, it, it helped Cut me develop teeth. some confidence. Yeah. Um, it also, I, I think, was one of those, those opportunities where you could step up and do the right thing. And, and when you did that, people appreciated it. And then you're, you get to connect and, you know, form some relationships, and it's good. Awesome. Is there anything that you wish I would have asked you before we go into our rapid-fire question round? <laughs> now you have me worried. <laughs> rapid-fire question. I, I would say um, the motivation for me, is how do you do the right thing one person at a time? And that's a hard thing to do in medicine, especially when you have five minutes per encounter. Um, I've, I've spent a lot of my time in various ways in my field, from research to publishing to teaching. Um, I, I've given a lot of lectures through the years to my colleagues, trying to help them understand some of the things we talked about, what you can measure, how you can treat it, how you can decrease heart attack and stroke. And there's a sense of frustration frequently comes back to me of everything you're talking about sounds great. I don't have time for that. Mm-hmm. I got five minutes. I got seven minutes. I got three or four medical problems to deal with at the same time. And you're telling me, think, you know, uh, deeply about this. And, and that's just not happening. So what I hope is that we will begin to work smart and hard. Uh, we're working hard, but we need tools that will make this doable, actionable, how can we facilitate the kinds of conversations that need to happen so everybody's mom, dad, brother, sister, significant other can have the kind of interaction where we don't miss things, we find things early, and the right things are done? This feels like, and, and I'm not an AI guy, I think AI is a significant threat to so many things for mankind. But I do feel like this might be an area where AI could do a world of good. So one step back from AI is integrating things we know. So AI is putting together possible relationships that then need to be vetted. And in a research sense, that can be valuable, right, Uh, in genetics. We have the full genome sequence now. Mm -hmm. And you can ask the question, are there individual fragments of genes that are associated with risk of heart disease? Yes. 
and how many do we know of? 6,500 and counting. So what do you do with 6,500 small nuclear peptide SNPs and say, what combination that informs me of anything? Well, that's AI, and it can go through this process. Okay, but, but for what we're talking about, integration is the guidelines say history, biometrics, biomarkers, risk-enhancing factors, harmonize six sets of guidelines. That's the universe of information that you need to know and distill down one patient at a time. Mm. It's, it's very doable if you have a system that's doing it. If you don't have a system that's integrating that, then you're flying by the seat of your pants hoping for the best. And that's where Precision Health Reports, I hope, is going to be valuable to people, is that you don't have to fly by the seat of your pants. You can actually take what you know we know to be important information and for the patient as much as anything else now but you can speak to this you know yeah. you you get the report <clears throat> I'll back plug and you it. say dude who knew right who knew and then then you've got this stuff and you say i see things i didn't know i know i can do things i can follow this over time and it's working yeah uh for anyone listening or wants to listen to me i am a patient without i without um i found out about it and then I started using it, and I've continued to use it, uh, Precision Health Reports. And so a lot of times in the medis- medical world, like, you kind of went to the dark side, uh, like the darker side. Yeah, of course, it's it's potentially you find morbidities and stuff like that. But I look at it more like maintenance. Um, a lot of people, I joked about cold plunge. They'll do a lot of things <laughs> to maintain health or try to, like, uh, shortcut health. Yep. But one of the things people don't want to do is know the truth. And... For the longest time, the problem is probably like, I don't want to see a doctor or I don't want to see a combination of doctors that will put this together. And so when I found out about it, that's why I said, yeah, well, this sounds look good. And it legit take, it takes less than 10 minutes. Like of your actual physical time when you go to the lab, the labs are always ready to see you. It's not like a doctor's office. They just You just check in and they take your blood and you're done, literally in and out the door. But what I like about it, and I've tracked and trended my disease states and it's gone down. I'm still yellow, but off red. Is it's a simple I thing? That is, was a, I thought that was a race joke for a second. No, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it could be though. It's a good one. <laughs> but I, I my, my wife does a simple thing: is she pastes the board, the report on the fridge. I've found that eating well at home is super easy because you're just looking at. I just look at it. Like, yeah, it's <laughs> right there, like, and you're like, 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 damn, like, okay, should I eat this? Uh, you know, this cookie because I, I got kids. You know, there's junk food in the house and. It's 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 a simple uh, maintenance, I think, and uh, I think if people did it once a year, I think th- they would be. How often do you do it? I do it once a year. Once a year, it's two hundred fifty bucks. That's yeah. not that expensive. No. People go to great lengths to 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 get healthy. Yeah. Two hundred fifty dollars to just have a and it track. So it's simple. It's a line chart. Like so, when you started, did you have reds? Yeah, really bad. And now you're all yellows, at least. In some, in a lot of areas, you got you still got a red or two. I still got some, but like I, I haven't been able to change my diet completely. Like I, it's been like a slow process. Um, but I'm also not racing to it either. Yeah. Um, no, I got you. You know, I'm, I'm I would consider myself kind of what we talked about earlier. Is like at the gym, I'm among the top. Perfor- I'm not the top performer, but I'll, I'll consistently be in like the top. Yeah, you're good. 15. We've worked out together. You're, yeah, you're- I'll be in the top 15 of like capability. But I know I carry body fat. I know I've. Yeah. Body fat inside my system. I yeah. know I have LDL. I know yeah. I have HDL. I know I have all these things. So when it, when it's like when it's just me, it's really easy to say no to like a treat. But I don't say no to treats outside of work. 
I don't have my report. I need to start taking bring this report to Diesel. We judges. should make a copy and put, paste a, put right your on report the, up there. Paste it right on the board. All so right. yeah, anyone out there listening, it's like it helps decision making, I think. It's like it's like the same thing when when you keep track of your food. Yeah. You just don't eat as much. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if you're logging your food, because then you're like, uh, you know, you're well, looking like, at how many. Like, wow, that is pathetic. Like, uh, I've just had five donuts. Yeah. Like, that's pretty bad. <laughs> I can't really have the sixth donut. I'm really glad I didn't get donuts for this morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm really I know. Somebody. You should have had like some nice vegetables or something. <laughs> Are you a veteran looking for work? Are you a part of a company looking to hire hardworking, dedicated, accountable leaders? EmpowerEmploy.us has you covered. EmpowerEmploy helps translate field skills into business skills. For instance, veterans are excellent and honest communicators. If you hear foobar or tarfu, it means the problem will be solved as soon as possible. If you hear a veteran say bohika, then you can be sure that the situation will be handled amicably. EmpowerEmploy has helped connect military spouses with work. Get started with your career today. Visit www www.empoweremploy.us connecting military veterans to hiring teams so this is the rapid fire round right all right you don't get to think about these very long you have to answer within 10 seconds but the first one i always ask is what is the toughest animal that you think you could defeat in hand-to-hand combat because you are a sixth don in taekwondo i believe that this should be a beefy animal i'm ready Ten seconds is a long enough. You understood the I will. I will say a German Shepherd. Wow. That's, I mean, that's a tough. Wow. That's, a, uh, that's realistic, but tough. Like it's going to be a hard fight. I, I actually had to to take on a German Shepherd one and, time. And you so, won. Yeah. There you go. So, <laughs> oh, there we go. Going from experience. We, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So that, that was that. Can you survive a viper bite? What's the most interesting With place help. you've ever been? Uh, Israel. How many seven-year-olds do you think you could fight off before they'd overpower you? Six. <laughs> what would be your weapon of choice in a zombie apocalypse? Shotgun. That's a good one. What's your go-to karaoke song? None of the above. You don't, you know, no, no I, karaoke I have song? No, no, I don't do karaoke, nor will I ever. Wait, right, Matt well, told us, Matt told us you were a great singer. Oh, he lied to you. Oh. <laughs> Dirty liar. Oh. Dirty liar. What a liar. I, what's I, your, what's the favorite book you've read in the last year? Um, Children at Risk. Children at Risk? What's that about? Uh, it's an old book. And it was a book that was written about uh, certain um, changes that were happening in society and the educational system back in the 80s. And it f- foreshadowed certain things that are happening today. Huh. And uh, the, the premise of the book is, to the victor go the spoils, and the spoils are our children. And there was a, wow. a, a tremendous amount of, uh, unfortunately, positive uh, forecasting of the fact that when we get to some of the uh, agendas that are being taught now in schools and we're getting away from traditional values we're getting into moral relativism we're getting into everybody's right nobody's wrong there is no standard there there is no true north there are various uh, social angles that you know will come up and go unchecked then we get into a situation where uh, people are adrift and um 
to the victor because of spoils, and the spoils are our kids. Interesting. I'm going to have to read that. Now, now I want to read it, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, which, by risk. the way, uh, I saw this thing about how in California, I don't know if this is going to happen or not, people are trying to push and get rid of advanced accelerated math yes, classes it, yes, because, because they consider hurt. it racist because it's overwhelmingly enrolled by, like, you know, Asian, it's not a, it's Asian Asians kids and white or whatever. Kids, it's yeah. like so. They want to get rid of advanced math curriculums. Wow. That doesn't seem like a good move. Wow. <laughs> no, 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 no. You should always be looking to accelerate those who want to be accelerated. Always. Exactly. Like. Exactly. Like, yeah. Why would you ever hold someone back? Always. Right. What fictional character do you think you're most like? Doctor Strange. Yeah, I'll go with that. <laughs> I, I, I will go with that. What's the worst piece of advice you got as you were starting your company? Um, we never really got bad advice. Come on. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to think. <clears throat> the absence of advice may, may be the, the best answer. <laughs> I mean, because, you know, okay. Matt, Matt and I uh, got started and... Um, there are a couple of advisors that we had that basically uh, gave us good advice of, you know, minimally viable product, know yep. your market, yep. you know, grow uh, organically, don't take on debt, uh, avoid paying yourselves if you can, let the uh, revenue fund the growth of the company. All those were, were good pieces of advice. Um, so as far as, you know, fatal you know, piece of advice. Now, I can tell you an old company that I was in, this idea of going uh, out for money early was a really bad piece of advice. Terrible piece it was of a advice. terrible piece of yeah. advice, but that's not what we did with Precision Health Force. But for LipoMed, LipoScience, we, we went out for multiple rounds of money from various people, and that was necessary for the company's life, but at the same time, you end up with the liquidation event where there's a whole series of people, and you're being drug along behind the car. Yep. So. Yeah. Yep. The investors get paid first. People forget. Oh, my <laughs> what's your What's your guilty pleasure? Mm. Ice cream. That's bad. <laughs> if you could invite three people to dinner, living, dead, fictional, non-fictional, who would you invite? Oh, wow. Um, and they don't have to be in, in the same genre. Just nope. To, nope. Okay, so it would be Jesus, George Washington, and Abraham Lincoln. What's the first question you'd ask them? What's the first question I would ask them? Totally different, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I would ask Washington and Lincoln, what was the hardest problem they had to solve in their day and age? And with Christ, I would say, why do you love us so much that you would die for me? That's awesome. What's one job nobody could pay you enough to do? There's a whole list of dirty jobs that Roe does. and I <laughs> <laughs> So looking at his, uh, if you ask me to clean out sewers, no thank you. Not a, you're not on board with that? No. Necessary job, though. It is. Someone's got to do it. A lot, yep. of, lot of lipids in there. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine. I can only imagine. <laughs> All right, what celebrity, this is our last one, what celebrity would you most like to switch lives with? And you can't give the wuss answer of nobody because I like my life exactly the way it is. Oh, we took that one off the table. 
So the first question is, do I know a celebrity well enough to know their life that I would want to switch with? Well, you can switch with anyone. It doesn't have to be a celebrity. Oh, okay. Um, Five. Four, it can be a pro three, athlete because you want their skill. Two, no. one. I would, I would say if I had to switch, if if you were going to force me to switch with anybody, I would I would take uh, Drew Brees. Drew Brees. All right. Why, yeah. is that? Why is that? So I'm a, a Saints fan. Grew up in the in New Orleans uh, in Louisiana and went to medical school in New Orleans. And Drew Brees, when he was uh, being wined and dined to come to New Orleans as a free agent, they took him through. I think inadvertently an area of the city that was messed up by Katrina that had not been cleaned up. And they thought, well, we probably just messed this whole idea up. And the report is that Drew Brees and his wife at the end of the visit said, what can I do to help? And he cool. and the Manning family are royalty in New Orleans. Uh, the Drew Brees Foundation and the work that he has done to help people in that city has been amazing. So don't know him, never met him, follow him from a distance. Doesn't hurt that he's a goat as far as being one of the best quarterbacks of all time. Yeah. Undersized, <laughs> yep. uh, you know, just really yeah. smart, quick read, nice good guy. arm, yep. nice guy. Do the right thing for the right reason. Um, so if I had to switch with somebody, that would be it. That's awesome. It's a good one. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Enjoyed having you. Have to have you on again to get deeper <laughs> into the the dangerous world of lipids. Um, Folks, this has been Dr. William Cromwell, lipid specialist, sixth Don in Taekwondo. Son is a bronze medalist in the world, and we've got a lot more to talk about the next time he's on the show. Thank you so much for being on with us. And we if you're looking it. for a oh, discount, so. Matt asked me to do this. If you're looking for a discount for a Precision Health Reports, check the show notes below. we got a discount code for you. Woo! Sign up. Get yourself checked out. There it is. Well, thanks, Nick. Enjoyed it. Hey, thank you so much for, for being on. Super interesting. No, my pleasure. <laughs>